Here we go. Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1000 Hours Outside. And back today, I am so honored, grateful, and excited. Kim John Payne, welcome. Oh, gosh, Ginny, that your podcasts are so great. It gives us such a good excuse to get together. You know, it's so lovely to see you. I couldn't even believe the first time that we got to have a podcast together. Simplicity Parenting, the book that you wrote, changed my early childhood completely for me and for the kids. <laughs> great when it is one of those things that enhances the lives of everyone. And so when you said yes, I think I was dancing and yelling and so excited. And here we sit for the fourth time. And I wanted to tell you that your books, they're so influential in the ways that you come back to them. Simplicity Parenting was a book that I pulled off the shelf time and again when I had young kids. And you and I talked recently about your book about raising emotionally resilient teens and tweens that came out last year, right? That's a newer one. Yeah. And it was so important for me to read as a mother, as a person, you know, if you're online, if you have any sort of presence, you're dealing with nasty comments and things like that. And it was very strengthening for me to read. And then within the last four to five months, we started to struggle with some of those situations with our own kids. And I wasn't expecting it. And I think a lot of times you're not expecting it. Things sort of come out of the blue and you don't really know how to handle it. And we went right to your book and we've read it as a family and we have strengthened the family base camp. It was just very life-giving, Kim. And I think had we not had that, we would have really floundered. And that's how I feel about all of your books. It's like, had I not had these books, we would have really floundered. And because we had them, I had something to immediately go to. And I think what you do in all of your books is you do such a fabulous job of communicating that this is a tall order. This is big. The little things, the big things, they're big. It's a tall order, but you can do it. And so I just wanted to publicly thank you for that, for putting those resources into the world that parents can turn to when they really are stuck. And so we've really had a great time strengthening the family-based camp and talking about the safe harbor. Kudos to you. Writing books is a lot of work. It's very difficult often to take all these things and sum them down. It takes so much time, but they're so impactful. So thank you. Oh, good. And how are the kids doing, Jenny, uh, with that? Because it's really tough when there's online social tensions. And it's such a, that's why I dedicate a whole chapter of the book. My editor came back to me and said, you know, you've got to dedicate a whole chapter. So I, I, as you might recall, I went like, here's how social tensions happen in real life, but here's how they happen in virtual life. And I go backwards and forwards or Luis Fernanda Yosa, my co-author, and I go backwards and forwards between there's this kind of exclusion and what I call hyper-controlling. Mm -hmm. I don't really use the term bullying so much these days. I use more the term social hyper-controlling, which I know is a bit of a mouthful, but it is what it is. Right. And I compare it to real life, how it's hurtful, and then virtual life, how it's devastating. Mm -hmm. And I just go backwards and forwards. And then, as you know, the bulk of the book is 10 read aloud stories mm -hmm. that a parent can sit or an educator or care professional and read with their kids to empathize, but then to show where they misunderstood, got it wrong, pivot, and then how they take control and stand in their own strengths and actually come out of that situation strong. Is it going okay? With most situations, it's a work in progress, but how's it going for you? 
it is a work in progress, but like I said, it's something that we have been able to fall back on. And I think sometimes in parenting, you find yourself in these situations because parenting is constantly changing and shifting and kids are in different seasons and different periods of life. And so all of a sudden you're there and you think, oh, if I didn't have this information, I would have no idea how to help my child. So I have dealt with a little bit more of the online things just because I have a public presence. But yeah, it's a lot of in-person, a little bit online, just interpersonal things. And we have been able to use your books to guide our kids and to guide ourselves. And it helps you realize that you do have more power. I don't know if that's the right word, more influence Mm -hmm. than you might think that you have with that whole concept of strengthening the family-based camp and trying to be that safe harbor for our kids. I mean, it has been remarkably impactful. It's a truthful statement to say, I'm not quite sure where we would be as a family, as parents and our children, their foundation, if not for having your books. Mm, that's the, that uh, you know, we all have these big projects in our life, Ginny, every single one of us. And it's when you do a big project like that and, and it helps, it puts a bit of wind in your sails, doesn't it, to keep going. So thank you. <laughs> yes. And it really helps. So so many of your books that have influenced our family incredibly deeply. The one I've read the most recently is called The Soul of Discipline, The Simplicity Parenting Approach to Warm, Firm, and Calm Guidance from Toddlers to Teens. And this is a book about, I think, all the things that tend to trip us up. And we don't really have a foundation and we don't know quite what to do. And we get flustered and all of those things. And just another, I, you know what I think, Kim, I, I read your books and I, this is so bad. I'm always skeptical that the next one could be as good as any of the others. I'm like, there's no way. There's no way. And then I like, I have this entire book. I have the whole thing underlined. So I don't know why I keep doing that. And I'm like, oh, of course. Of course, this one is good as all the other ones. But like I said, it's always this message of you can do it. And I come away with it every time. There was something really interesting in this one, talking about online. And that's a big part of our lives these days that I had never thought about this. And you were talking about in this book, the differences, because you're working with families all the time. You see all sorts of different kids and families, and you've spent time with families that have low or no screens. So that's just how they run their family. And you're not judgmental about anything, but you're just talking about, you see these differences. You said, and and actually, I think you say things like, I'm not anti-screen, I'm pro-human. I'm pro-human relationships. Like, I love that. Pro-family connections. So these low or no screen families, and you talk about the difference between perceived popularity. This was so interesting to me because we are in this conundrum as parents of, I need to allow my child to be on these apps, to have this phone so that they are popular and they fit in. But you're talking about the difference between, I've never heard this, perceived popularity versus being truly well-liked. And how does this no screen, low screen fit into that? Mm, yeah. You know, the... um because with my own kids, I, I, you know, with our kids, we took a risk as well because we were no screen through their growing up th- uh, for them and then kind of low screen as they hit their teen, early teen years, only because the school insisted on it, not because of our choice. It's the schools who are often the, the perpetrators of this stuff. What I noticed is that with my own kids, but also you know, I took a risk there, as I said, but with with just countless other parents who are low screen and, and curate screens very carefully, is that 
when there was stuff going on in the friendship groups and other kids were unhappy or just things were they were upset or things weren't going well or whatever, they tend to go to the low screen kids. They tend to go to the kids who have have more of an ability to follow. It's what I talk about, Jenny, is these kids have the ability to follow their own North Star rather than the magnetic North of toxic pop culture. And they have an ability to be truly present. And so when when one of the kids in the friendship group or even in the extended friendship group needs someone real to talk to, not virtual, not a virtual talk, but a real talk, they go to the kids who can still do that, who can really talk, who can really be present, not virtually present, not OMG, you know, that really, oh, that totally sucks, but no, but really present. And over the years, I've watched these kids, my own kids too, be another term is enduringly popular, not intermittently popular. There's an enduring and a kind of a low-key acceptance, but there's a degree, and I'm not going to dodge this, there's a degree of discomfort because those kids who are screen addicted or have compulsive use of screens and are on their way to screen addiction will stand around and talk or at lunchtimes at school talk and pretty much all they can talk about is TikTok or whatever, you know, like whatever they've seen on a screen. Low screen kids, including my own, are on the periphery of those uh, fluff conversations. But as soon as the conversation turns to something meaningful, they're at the core of it. At low screen kids go to the core of reality and are at the periphery of fluff. And I'll take it. I'll take that. I will too. Wow. This is kind of toward the end of the book. And I, jumped there just because I thought it was fascinating. And I've not considered that before. You say there's a difference between high visibility, intermittent popularity, and low key enduring popularity. We do not want to sacrifice their precious sense of self in order to become the cool kids of the moment. So it's really eye-opening, something for parents to think about, especially if we're thinking about how we do screens in our home. And there was a really I mean, just this huge paragraph from Abercrombie about popularity, mm. where they say, mm. a lot of people don't belong in our clothes. Are we exclusionary? Absolutely. So just this sense of what are we doing that's enduring and that really matters. But the book is about discipline. And what this main premise is, is disoriented kids, which... <laughs> I, told, I mean, I feel disoriented sometimes and we, we feel lost. And <laughs> so I totally relate with this. And you start off some by talking about all the things that kids today have to deal with. You say few adults among us have had to cope with the incessant stream of images, impressions, ideas, and attitudes and conflicting messages modern kids must navigate. Do you think that adults tend to gloss over what kids today have to face? Yeah, you know, one example of that, Jenny, is a good friend of mine is an evolutionary neurologist. My background is as a child developmentalist. Hers is in goes way, 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 way back. And I asked her, just based on the science, is it possible that the brain is so plastic that it will be okay with this too much, too soon, too sexy, too young, this 
bass, incessant kind of bass beat of staccato life, is it possible that we'll be okay? Can the brain adapt? And so it's a fascinating question. I'll go back with my postgrads uh, and we'll, we'll work this out. She came back a couple of weeks later and said, well, you know, we've basically, our findings are that we've gotten about 900 years ahead of our kids' ability to cope with this, that if we capped it off now, the pace of life right now, and kept it at that, they'd be good to go in about 900 years should they stay in childhood for 900 years. So we've gotten so far ahead. And the, of course, the what happens, the default is that the sympathetic nervous system then just dominates over the parasympathetic, the intake, the um, stimulus, the arousal, the reactive brain dominates over the parasympathetic, which is the calming, soothing, digesting all that you see in a day, just through calmly reading a book, doing a little project, just being able to hang out. And I, I find, you know, more and more when that's out of whack, when that's not in balance, that's when we get a lot of anxiety issues. That's the anxiety path. Where those two things are in balance, the stimulating and the calming every day has a balance between taking in and just digesting and letting it go and just processing. Then that's a really resilient kid. That's the path of resiliency. Society takes care of the stimulating. We totally do that. I mean, no worries there. We don't, we do not have to help that. But where we've got to be much more conscious in control and in control, I feel, is in establishing these oases of parasympathetic soothing, calming. And we we, you're right, we can do that. That is totally within our power. But we just got to, in a sense, almost know why. So living a simple and balanced life is not being counterculture by any means. It's just purely in line with the brain science. It's not being unrealistic. In fact, it's quite, quite the opposite. That for me is like, you know, a, a tap turned on pouring into a cup. I often use this metaphor and into that cup, that flow of daily life, it fills and fills and fills. And that's just fine. But for many kids, there's that tap is pouring in too much. It's good stuff, but it's too much good stuff. And there's spillage. And that spillage is behavior. And there's a key decision that I think many of us are making as parents. Do we want to spend our lives mopping up spillage behavior, or do we want to turn down the tap? So we don't have to always be mopping up behavior. We don't always have to be dealing with kids who are overstimulated, overaroused, or on a just on a roll and can't stop and are getting home and they're being they're being nasty sometimes or, or provocative to parents and provocative to siblings because they're on when kids are overly stimulated and they don't get to have enough downtime, enough just simple decompression time. That's when the dragon brain wakes up. That's when the amygdala, the fight or flight brain wakes up. And kids will then, they will, uh, uh, and it's not their fault, but they'll start to provoke. They'll start to poke because when they poke their siblings, 
or poke their parents, they get a big reaction, and therefore the adrenaline, which is a, and cortisol, which is associated with overstimulation, it stays up because these kids are hypervigilant and they need to be up on the up and on the awake all the time. And what they'll do is that if things go quiet, they will unwittingly but somewhat deliberately provoke and create anger and frustration because their body has biochemically been tuned to receive large doses of dopamine, but adrenaline and cortisol in particular. What a lot of parents have discovered, and this is where the Solar Discipline book comes into it, Jenny, is that by one aspect of that is giving kids boundaries, but boundaries that change over time. You know, I wanted to call this book, I didn't want to call it the Soul of Discipline, actually, to tell you the truth. What I wanted to call it, and my editor said it's far too long, and I still don't agree, but I wonder what you think. I wanted to call it, there's no such thing as a disobedient child, only a disoriented one. Mm. I actually wanted to call the book that great big long title, mm. because that really does sum up yeah. what the book is about. It's about helping kids who are disoriented because they don't wake up in the morning thinking, I wonder how I can be disobedient today. They don't. It's really the disorientation is at, is at the core of the book. And I would imagine that a lot of parents maybe have firsthand experience with this when you have a toddler. I mean, I remember this time and again, you know, a toddler that play great. They're throwing rocks in the river, yeah. digging in the mud. They're a happy kid. Then you got to leave and they melt down. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're upset. And, and, you know, I, I would always say, look, you know, if they're upset, that means they had a great time. You know, my kid is, I, I love it when kids get upset when they have to leave our house. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't love it that kids are upset, but I, you know, what it symbolizes is that they were deep in play and they were enjoying their experience. That's what I'm saying. I don't love when kids are upset, obviously, but you experience or, you know, your child and, and they're hungry or they, they fall asleep right away. And with our teenagers, because we have a couple right now, they're talking a lot about how their friends at church say, I, I fight with my mom all the time. And we don't really have that. You know, our, our kids are, you know, it's pretty chill. They get enough sleep. They maybe don't have quite as many, they're home with us, so they don't maybe quite as, as much of the social pressures. I mean, I remember, I remember how off is so hard. What are you wearing? What do you look like? How are your grades? Who's talking to you? This, I mean, there's so much. And then you throw on the social media piece and the online piece. You had a story in this book about some girl who got left out of the movies. They All the kids went to a different movie and she just ended up in a different theater. And, you know, this is part of childhood, these hard, hard experiences. And then you say they, they're drowning in emotional overwhelm. I think maybe one of the pieces of your books that make them so powerful is that the tools are not what you think they would be. So if your child, let's say, is struggling with a situation with bullying, so we're talking about emotionally resilient teens and tweens, you're talking about this book, A Kid Is Not Disobedient, Only Disoriented, you know, the long title, The Soul of Discipline, you would think, well, I need to have all of these strategies and I need to know all of these things. And your point is, turn down the tap. In so many beautiful and significant ways with examples, you're, and then I think a parent can latch on and say, oh, well, I, I can do that. I can be a safe harbor. I can put the effort in there to strengthen what we have going on at home. And we went to a University of Michigan basketball game with our kids over winter break. And that was why, 
We had the whole conversation, Kim. We need to strengthen the family base camp. And we're going to go do this as a family. And we went out to dinner in Ann Arbor. It's a college town. We went to his basketball game. We've never done it before. The tickets are $16. It made a difference. And that's how your books are. And I find so much comfort in them because I can do them. And you see immediately that it makes a difference. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com 1000. That's drinkag1.com 1000. Check it out. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember to sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com/outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. Can you talk about the importance of the parents staying calm and which is hard? (laughs) I get that that part is hard, but there's a lot of stuff coming out about how we can try and calm ourselves with our breath, with small tasks. But you say kids have a survival memory. Never heard about this, that sometimes kids remember things a lot longer than we wish they would because maybe it's emotionally charged. What should we be doing in order to stay calm and why is it important? You know, there's been a lot of research done into mirror neurons in kids' brains, as in a mirror that you look at on the wall and, you know, brush your hair or whatever. And the mirror neurons, kids, there's research, it was in around the 2000s that it started to be uh, really very, very clear in a number of different research projects that kids, when they're very little, 
they can be sitting perfectly still, but they'll be watching us. And then let's say we're, we're sweeping the floor, and they're not sweeping the floor, but inwardly they are in floor sweepingness. They are mirroring what we're doing. We're washing the dishes. They're not moving, but the brain imaging is conclusive that they are in activity, that they are watching. And then you hear that stool being dragged over the floor and they're coming to help. And you think, oh my goodness, this is going to take three times longer. But they're coming and then they imitate us in real time. Now, further research as it went on, then pointed towards the cluster of these neurotransmitters, the mirror neurons around emotional centers of children. So what we feel, they feel. So the more, and I'm not going to say calm, that's high order, that's good if we can do it with kids, but centered, at least staying centered. The more centered we are around kids, the more we are oriented, they will orient. The more regulated we are, they will regulate because it's involuntary. That's the thing with mirror neurons. It's involuntary. And this is one of the first places that I point to. I, I talk about this more extensively in the Being at Your Best When Kids Are at Their Worst in that book. It has a link to the Soul of Discipline book, Jenny, that, that you're looking at um, at the moment, is that the metaphor I use is that when kids are disoriented, they will ping us. It's really yucky to feel disoriented. And then the kids will ping us. And the reason I use that metaphor, it's like a submariner who's sending out a sonic ping, who's sending out a noise, apparently, it, it sounds like ping, it hits something, and then it bounces back. Mm -hmm. So they send something out, it hits and bounces back. I see kids pinging all the time. They're disoriented, life's moving too fast, they had too many playdates, something happened, a, a new baby came into the house, you know, in terms of a new brother or sister arriving, uh, they've moved house, there's a, at a developmental change, like they're nine years old and a lot's going on. Something is disorienting them. Okay. What happens is, is that they'll ping us. And the reason I think this is so important is that when we look at a child who is being provocative, and we can wonder, just inside ourselves, I think of this as the wonder of wondering, is if we can wonder, I wonder what's going on with you, you little rotter kind of thing, but I wonder what's going on with you. What's happening? Don't say that out loud because that'd be weird, but it's a, I wonder what's going on for you. This is almost like a little bit of a brain trick because if, if we go into wondering, when a child's being provocative, and we go into wondering, we go into our limbic system and into our frontal lobes in general, into our adult brain, to our human brain. When kids are being provocative, we need to stay out of our amygdala. We need to stay out of the lizard of the dragon brain. We need to not take it personally. This is the big thing. If we can wonder and understand what's going on, understand that something is going on for our child, this is not personal. It's a really, I remember uh, being up north in Canada. I work with a group of First Nations folk up in the north of Canada. I've been doing it for many, many years. And these First Nation grandmas cannot believe 
and they asked me about it. Why do our children get into arguments with four-year-olds? They just said it's just so unattractive, like an adult arguing and justifying with a child. Now, I said to them, well, culturally, we tend to take things personally unless we have a rich culture that's intact as possible as yours culture, or we create a microculture within ourselves. It's not a big culture outside of ourselves. It's a microculture inside ourselves to look at our child and understand they're not being disobedient. They're not deliberately doing this. Actually, it's much worse for them, much worse for them when they're behaving like this, to not take it personally. And the only way I know to not take it personally, like a fast track to that, is to understand where we're getting pinged and to inwardly wonder what's going on. Now, Ginny, the thing about this is that when we wonder what's going on, it's impossible to take it personally. It's actually now impossible. And then this is the part that I really love is that we don't even have to have a good answer. Like we might wonder, oh, what's going on for you? And then the answer might be, I don't have a clue, right? Or it might be, I knew we shouldn't have done that play date, or I knew we shouldn't have done that extra thing last time, whatever. You might get an answer or you might not. That's not the point. The point is you wondered, and now you're no longer going to get into it with your child. Because when little kids are angry, frustrated, provocative, I don't know if you know what I mean by this, but they're also very um, vulnerable. When kids are angry, they're vulnerable. You've, I'm sure, seen this with your kids, Jenny. I'm sure others have too, is that when they're very provocative, they look right at you. They're scanning you. Have you noticed that? Like when they're very little, you'll say, don't pick up that food with your hands, sweetheart, and they'll pick it up and they'll look right at you. Don't drop it on the floor. Mm -hmm. And they'll drop it on the floor. Like, what are you going to do about that, mum? Now, when they're older, they do the same thing. It's just not quite as obvious, or maybe it is. But the thing about it, though, is that if we can stay in the wonder of wondering, what happens is that we get these little wonder wrinkles in our eyes. Like, I wonder what's going on. I don't know if you can see it on the camera, but I wonder. And you can't, I, I didn't even mean it then, but our shoulder rounds a little bit. Ah, I wonder. And we breathe out. Ah, you don't like, oh, I wonder what's going on. That's in trauma, maybe. But with this, like, I wonder, ah, ah, we're breathing out. We're loosening in our body. We're rounding off a little bit. And that is a very primitive sign to a child they're safe. We send out these primitive body language physiognomy with our eyes our jaws loosen a little bit and most importantly the left the best to last our eyes go from hard focus with staring right at a child if i spoke like that to my father when i was your and we get a really our words become javelin like and our eyes become javelin like now when we wonder our eyes go into the middle distance. They no longer just focus singly on our child. Our eyes take our child in and very primitively, involuntarily, our children note this and now we become a point of safety, not wow. a big scary dude. Wow. 
there's so much there and interesting to know because I think it motivates you to try it and to continue to try it. I think it's something that you practice and you feel it and then you feel that it works and it gives you a foundation to try it again. What about this misnomer that if we just schedule in all the time, then there will be no time or room for any sort of misbehavior. I think that's maybe sometimes what parents think is, well, if I schedule this and then that, you had a these jump rope rhymes, like Monday's soccer, Tuesday. If, if we schedule in all the time, then they're never going to be idle, so they're never going to misbehave. Why is that the wrong direction? And I'd also add into that, Jenny, iPads and screens. As long as they're on a screen, then we don't have to deal with them. As long as they're at soccer practice, as long as they're at martial arts, as long as they're uh, at play dates, as long as they're at ballet, we don't have, like, it's good. I agree. I'm not against sports. You know, I, I played sport for my country. I, you know, like I'm a, I've coached sports for getting on 30 years. You know, I, I co-authored this book, Beyond Winnings, um, Smart Parenting in a Toxic Sports Culture. I'm into sports. I seriously am just on that front. But it's too much of it. It's when you get this gut instinct. And this is where I've got, I'm full of hope for what, what's happening for so many parents now is that you look around and you see everyone doing a ton of stuff. Like every day there's things going on. And there's something at a gut level we think, oh, that's a lot. But at a cognitive level, we think, well, everyone's doing it. And it's like a parental arms race. I've got to do this. But the research that is pretty categoric, and I cite this in a lot of my books, but also just our gut instinct is, you know, that's too much. And if we can give our instinct its space and say something like, like there's one of the podcasts, I do these little simplicity parenting podcasts, and they're just 10 minutes. Uh, they're, they're really little. Uh, they're nowhere near as full as yours, Jenny, but there's little things. Everybody loves them though, because I will say this, me and my midwife talk about it all the time because she has a voice similar to yours. She talks with this cadence and she's a huge fan of yours. Her sons went to the Waldorf school in Ann Arbor and she sold, she had a small store for a while and she sold your book, Simplicity Parenting. That's actually where I found you was through her. So she says sometimes she'll just turn on your podcast just to hear like you're the, I don't know what it is, the cadence in your voice, the timbre of it. And that's, I guess, kind of like those mirror neurons. It's coming through your ears. It's calming. I even feel it in these conversations. I'm like, oh, I gotta, I'm talking too fast. I gotta pull it back. Well, a little bit. you know, <laughs> someone said to me a little while ago, Kim, I love your podcast because when I can't sleep, you know, when uh, she called it the black dog comes around my door at late at night and I'm getting all anxious and worried. I thought it was a great expression, the black dog, you know, that uh, when a lot of us get anxious about our kids and uh, other stuff. She said, I turn your podcast on and I'm asleep right away. And I said, thank you, I think. The <laughs> <laughs> cure for sleeplessness. But the <laughs> There is something about that, though. I think yeah. in the vein of that conversation that it happens right away that you hear that calm and it reminds you. Well, I, should, I should be a little calmer. And so uh, kudos to you. I think those 10-minute podcasts are fantastic. People love them. 
Well, you know, in that one, uh, uh, in those podcasts, I recorded one called, But Mum, I Love It. And what it was meant, it was aimed, it was one of the ones, it's wide range of topics, but that one was was on after school activities and sports. Kids will say, I love it. I love it. And they do. They do love it. And there's no doubt about it. And they love this and they love that. But enduring love, it has us wanting more. You know, if something leaves us, oh, I'd love to do a little bit more of that rather than here, have it all and have it all now. For example, if we start kids in competitive sports, this is one study that I cite in that book, because we were taking on the sports lobby. It's a big one. So my, my co-authors and I really had to, had to sort of be careful with this and get our ducks in a row with the research. Um, a peer-reviewed, very reliable research piece found that if you start kids in competitive sports where there's a lot of pressure on them before the age of 12, over 70% of them have quit before the age of 16. Now, you've got teenagers, right, Jenny? I want my kids to be passionate about sports when they're 16, 17, 18, because there's a lot of other stuff I don't want them passionate about. So therefore, why not, I'm just using this as an example, but why not just have them in little rec leagues, not travel teams? Or why not even dial it back even further and just go ice skating with them when they're little or play in the park, playing catch when they're six, seven, eight. And so you're strengthening family base camp by just playing with them. And you're not putting them in teams, but you are developing skills, but it's it's just fun. You're playing soccer and or you're playing, you know, you're playing catch and it's kind of getting, you know, it's all we're really building up a skill. And all of a sudden the dog steals the ball and it turns into this madcap chase around the park. And it's so much fun ending up in a big giggly pile on each other. That is what will have a child develop all kinds of skills all kinds of proprioceptive skills that are broad range. And as they progress, they can form more and more and more. We interviewed Jenny Levy, who's the winningest coach in NCAA history. There's no such word as winningest, by the way. You guys in the United States make up these words and they're just all of a sudden real. Anyway, winningest coach in the United States. And uh, she's the lacrosse coach. And we interviewed her for the book. And she actually actively uh, recruits kids who didn't start lacrosse until much later into middle and high school. Wow. Because she says she calls them the drill and kill kids. She avoids them because they've had their interest really killed and their skills have been drilled and they're very, very predictable because everyone knows that. You take a kid who's been just jumping from tree branch to tree branch. Like I used to watch my kids get on one tree branch and I could see what they were going to do. And they were 30 feet up and they were ready to leap like a squirrel onto a onto another tree branch. And I just think, oh my goodness. But they did it and they could be really skilled. And I talked to them about it and they had all sorts of rationale as to what they were doing. You put a child who's done stuff like that or has a has a ramp in the backyard for their bike and they build the ramp themselves and it collapses and 
and they fall off their bike and we skin they skin their knee and then they build a better ramp and then they start developing all these tricks. You put a lacrosse stick in those kids' hands, a hockey stick, a basketball in those kids' hands when they're 12, 13, 14, mm. they have so much out-of-the-box movement ability that they're impossible to guard and kids play sports for friends and fun anyway. That's why they play. So, you know, I'm a really big believer in sports. Like I said, I played elite national level sports myself, but I hardly got any coaching, any coaching at all until I think it was 14, uh, 13, 13, going on 14. And by 17, I was representing my country, but I played everything. You know, I did all kinds of stuff. And this is not just personal. This is what the research is showing as well. So there's that piece. But your question, Ginny, is about the overwhelm, the overload, that kids love to do all this stuff. It's worth taking that love and dialing it back so that they will, like, for example, just one sport per season or one activity, or we do one play date per week, so that you give them the gift of anticipation that they're anticipating that things will happen when they're bigger, rather than trying to fit 18 years of development into the first eight or nine. That's just going to bring about a kind of a um, almost like an indigestion. Uh, it's just too much, and kids just can't absorb it. And it wow. it's kind of entitled. It's just they haven't had to wait. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting when you take another perspective. And I think that is what your books help people to do. I loved Beyond Winning. And I am not like a super big sports person, although I am coaching for the first time, even though I've never had a coach, a rec team. Yay, what are you coaching, Jenny? <laughs> What are you coaching? Ten and under basketball. Yay. And we do a lot of basketball and we also do a lot of crafts. <laughs> and it's super fun. And it's been going great. And I've I've actually learned a whole lot and I am loving it. And I have some basis from your book. You talk so much about the different coaching things. And I wasn't expecting this is it sounds awful. I think because I loved simplicity parenting so much that I was like, there's no way I could love these books as much. And each one, and Beyond Winning, and Luis has been on our show before too, and he is a who, he is so fun to talk with. You get out of it this other perspective. That is what you bring to the table where the whole culture says, don't have any discipline problems. Put your kids in activities from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. You won't even have to deal with it. Or the whole culture says, start your kid in the little kicker soccer program when they're 18 months. And then by the time they're this age, they're going to get a college scholarship. And you come and you say, well, no, well, no, there's a different perspective. And I think that the different perspective is attractive. And mm -hmm. that is one piece, I think, of why your books are so impactful, too, is attractive. I was like, I, I want to strengthen my family base camp. That sounds fun. And we did it. And we like this. And I want my kids to be an out of the box. I love what you said, have out of the box movement. And you're starting to get these little threads. I read a a book one time where they said that, you know, the college professors, they like the kids that can think out of the box and the ones that don't give the answer that everybody else gives. Or some business owners, they hire the B students because the B students are scrappy and they were able to maybe juggle a job and college at the same time. And you start to get yeah. these little whiffs of, wait a minute, 
maybe there's a different way that I could do this. And this is exciting to avoid the drill and kill kids. I mean, I've never heard that. And out of the box movement, that's attractive. That book is phenomenal. All the books beyond winning, they really have the capacity to change your family in substantial ways. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last minute get together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside 120. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. One of the things we're already almost running out of time. I would like you to know that I'm on page two of my notes, <laughs> which is okay. It's, it's all right. All right. So does it. I have to pick. I'm going to pick. I have to pick one last topic. What am I going to pick? I'm going to pick this. I liked the this analogy of the net. And you were talking about inner speech, that inner speech takes a long time to develop. You talked about it in terms of redfish and bluefish and this neural net with one of the things being as this grows, that when we scare children, we shock children, we can delay the development of inner speech. And I thought that was really something important to know. So can we that's the last one. That's what I picked. You know, and it does relate to to one of these, this other theme, you know, is that when kids have inside talk, when we allow them to have inside talk, that does circle back to the parasympathetic nervous system, where inside talk, which is all about impulse control, it's all about consideration. It's about for a child developing a little bit bigger picture. Like if I do it this way, then my little brother will join in with me. If I do it that way, 
he won't, and that won't be so much fun. And that's an inside voice. That's inside talk. Um, if I wait until my mummy finishes making supper, I'm going to ask about it then, because then she won't be so busy. And we know success in business, success in life is about, it's like for every step out there, every every one step out there, we need to have at least one or two steps in here. We need to go through an in here process before an out there process. These are the successful people. These are the people that do really well with their construction company, with their parenting, with their teaching, with their leadership roles in, in their communities, is that we feel very comfortable when people, you can see that it's not, forgive the analogy, but shooting from the hip all the time, and it's thoughtless, and it's scattered, and it's, in order to have in here, inside talk, we need to allow time for the parasympathetic nervous system because though that inside talk is cultivated, it, it's most obvious um, with little children, three, four, five, because what they do is that they external, you see them playing and they'll say, and now we're going to put, yeah, you're going to now put on your coat because it's really cold. And then not the red boots. No, you can't. And they're having this conversation right out loud. Now, that comment is so sweet when they're having this thinker out loud. But as they grow a little older, that speech still happens if we allow them time to play and we haven't got them in every little league, every play date, every sport, every that inside talk, because they don't do it when they're being dragged all over the place. Mm -hmm. They're just coping. They're not developing skills. They're coping. You could call it, well, it's a coping skill. I think it's a pretty thin argument. But that outside talk at around about sort of seven, eight, nine starts to become inside talk, and it starts to become the basis of frontal lobe development. And when children have inside talk, the parts of the brain that start to lay down path myelination pathways are the empathy centers in their brain. Like, if I do that, then my little brother, my little sister will play. She would really like, she wouldn't like that. Or it's the empathy centers, and it's also the cognitive centers, the learning centers. Huh, like a math homework, that didn't work. What can I do? And the inside talk going on relates to academic success, cognitive success, empathy, but it needs us to slow things down because that's where it develops. Often parents feel if we slow things down, our children are going to be disadvantaged. The opposite is true. The exact opposite is true. Wow. What a statement. What a statement. What a book, The Soul of Discipline. I put a little smile next to you. Being coercive is exhausting, but children use very little energy in simply disobeying you. <laughs> that's that's the mix right there, right? Like, how can I make this be less exhausting and kind of get to where the child is? And I think you give so many ways to make parenting less exhausting, less draining, less of a fight. I don't even know if that's the right word. Less of mm -hmm. these hard edges. And you give all of these ways to mm -hmm. do that. We didn't get to, I mean, I just want to throw this out there so people know there is so much in this book. How do we help children transition out of deep play? This is a really big deal. 
You talk about time limits, time warnings backfire, kids don't understand them, really important to know. You talk about how do we be monotone, how do we just be a broken record, why impulse control is so important now and to know. And you talk about their future. Kids are going to probably be self-starters. A lot of them, they're going to be contract-based, part-time. They have to know how to be patient. They have to know about when is the proper time. And that kids used to learn that when they were hunting. It's so fascinating. And then I, we didn't even talk at all, Kim, about the gardener and the guide and <laughs> the governor. Well, Jenny, you know, you know one thing that because the organizing, the whole organizing uh, sort of structure of the book is this governor when the kids are little, gardener when they're a little older, their teenage years, and the guide when they're in their teenage years. If folk were interested in that, because that is the key to it, is boundaries that grow over time. And they also can shrink back if needed. But when children are little, we're the governor of the family state. When they're in their tween years, 9, 10, 11, 12, then we're listening in, we're coaching them, but we're making decisions. And then when they're teenagers, we're coming alongside them because with teenagers, they can be spectacularly disinterested in our opinions, but they are very interested in their direction. So a good guide will talk about direction distraction. And on our website, Simplicity Parenting, there's this really neat quiz called Know Your Discipline Type. And that is all about, am I a natural governor? In which case, I'm going to have a really good time raising little kids. Am I a natural gardener? Am I a natural guide? But if I'm a natural governor and I'm raising teenagers and I try to keep that governor thing going, that's going to get colorful quickly. They won't want it. But if they're little and I'm trying to be a natural guide, which is appropriate for the teenage years, they're going to feel really unsafe because they don't know who's in control. Mm. They don't know who's in charge, who's giving them leadership. So if people want to explore what is my discipline type, there's a like it's I think it's about five to six minute little quiz uh, right on the website, and that might that might give a really good idea. And and again, a very doable strategy arises. Mm -hmm. And people can also find on your website you have phenomenal trainings. Can you tell a little bit about those? Yeah. Well, you know what? They're simple little trainings, Jenny, because it would be ironic to have well, complicated trainings for simplicity. Um, we've trained, I think it's approaching 1,500 people now around the world in uh, how to be a simplicity parenting family life group leader or coach or care professional, how to be a discipline and guidance coach or group leader, how to uh, be a, a, someone who helps in the community with emotional self-regulation of parents. Mm -hmm. And our latest one is uh, for care professionals is how to have how to help others raise emotionally resilient kids. Wow. And they're all fairly brief trainings. Um, because and the reason they can be relatively they're re, we're told fairly accessible is that the content of them i again i record a bunch of very brief sequenced uh videos mm -hmm. so all a parent has to do is get a group of people together watch the video and then they become discussion and group leaders which is a whole lot better way than being on the spot and needing to be an expert 
Um, and that's the basis of, of, of many of our trainings. Wait, why have I never done this? I want to do this. My friend Jennifer did it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> We're going to get off the call and that's what I'm going to go look into. Kim, your books, I cannot say enough. They have changed our whole life. They have the whole trajectory. And I know I understand that that has a generational impact because our kids' lives have been different because of your books. And I know that's going to affect them when they become parents as well. And so for parents who are listening and grandparents who are listening, friends who are listening, who have friends that are parents, even if you're a teenager, you know, when you're dealing with bullying, you're dealing with the pressure of sports, these books are going to give you something firm to grasp onto in a rapidly changing world and something soft to fall back onto when you feel like things are chaotic. And so what an honor to have you back on again, Kim. This has been an absolute delight. I always learn so much and I am able to take the things that you share and implement them, implement them today, implement them tomorrow, and immediately see that they are really making a difference in our family. So thank you for being here. Mm. Gosh, it's just such a treat, Jenny. I'm so glad you do what you do. Many blessings. <laughs> oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it.